The Old Testament reading for today is Genesis 1, 26 through 31. Genesis 1, 26 through 31. And the New Testament reading is Luke 8, 1 through 3. Uh, the sermon today will focus mainly upon Luke 8, 1. Let us go now to the reading of God's most holy word. Genesis 1, starting in verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Let us go now to Luke chapter 8 and read verses 1 through 3. Luke 8, 1. Soon afterward, Jesus went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means. So far the reading of God's most holy word. May he add his blessing to the preaching of it this morning. I think it would be good for us to remember that here in chapter 8 of Luke's Gospel, we are still learning about things that happened near the very beginning of Jesus' public ministry. Not much time has elapsed between His baptism and the events that are recorded for us here in Luke 8, uh, verses 1 through 3. And what was Jesus doing from the start of His public ministry? In Luke 8.1, we read that soon afterward he went on through cities and villages proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And this agrees with what was said back in Luke 4.43. There we heard the words of Christ, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. So Christ was sent for the purpose of proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. And here in Luke 8.1 we learn that this is what He did. First He preached the good news of the kingdom of God in the synagogues of Judea. And now we learn that He traveled around to other towns and cities proclaiming the same message. He proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God. Jesus was a preacher and so I do wonder if you think of Him like that. He came to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God. The question that we should ask is, what was the content of Jesus' preaching? 
what exactly did he say? In other words, what is the good news of the kingdom of God that he proclaimed? I want you to notice that our passage does not tell us. Neither Luke 4.43 nor Luke 8.1 reveal the content of Jesus' message. These passages simply tell us that Jesus proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God. And so we are, to, we are right to ask, what was this message that Jesus preached? And I might ask you, don't you want to know? Don't you want to know what Jesus preached? Don't you want to know what this good news of the kingdom of God is? You should, for it is through believing the good news of the kingdom of God, that is to say the gospel, that men and women are saved. Furthermore, this gospel of the kingdom that Jesus preached is nearly identical to the gospel of the kingdom that you and I are to preach. I say nearly because there are slight differences that have to do with perspective. We should remember that Jesus pointed to the future and said, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In other words, it is near You and I point to the past and preach, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is here now. Of course, Christ pointed to Himself as the King of this kingdom. We point away from ourselves and to Christ. But the point remains, the gospel that you and I have believed and are called to proclaim to others is substantially the same gospel that Jesus preached. It is the gospel of the kingdom of God. Before moving on, I think I should say that it would not be correct to strictly equate the teaching of Jesus recorded for us before and after this text with the good news of the kingdom. What what I mean is that it would not be correct to point to the sermon that Jesus preached to His disciples on the plain, as it is recorded for us in Luke 6.20-49, or to the parable that is recorded for us later in Luke 8, and to say, here is the gospel of the kingdom of God. No doubt these teachings of Jesus are are related to the gospel of the kingdom that He proclaimed. In the Sermon on the Plain, for example, we find kingdom ethics. In the parable of Luke 8, 4 and following, Christ teaches us about who will come into His kingdom, how and why. But it would not be correct to point to the Sermon on the Plain in Luke 6 or to the parable of the sower in Luke 8 and say, here is the good news of the kingdom of God that Jesus preached. What was His message then? That is the question. What is the good news of the kingdom of God? Where do we find its content? And the answer might surprise you. We find the content of the good news of the kingdom of God first in the Old Testament Scriptures. And yes, this message is found in the New Testament too, but it is not presented to us in the New Testament as if it were a brand new message. Instead, the good news of the kingdom of God is presented to us in the New Testament as a very old message that has advanced, that has been fulfilled, and that will one day be brought to completion. You see, this is why Luke tells us that Jesus came preaching the good news of the kingdom of God, but does not bother to tell us what his message was exactly. He does not tell us because he assumes we have read the first half of the book, wherein the gospel of the kingdom of God is clearly revealed. And when I refer to the book, I am referring to the book of the whole Bible. Luke assumes that his readers, the readers of this gospel of Jesus Christ, that they are familiar with the scriptures, that they know the Old Testament scriptures. And more than this, he expects that we will finish reading his gospel, so that we might learn how this kingdom of which Christ spoke was established. Furthermore, 
He expects that we will read his second volume, the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles, to consider the gospel message that the apostles of Jesus preached. You see, they were commissioned by Christ to preach the same good news of the kingdom of God, and they did. And we do have a record of their preaching in the book of Acts. We should pay very close attention to the way that the apostles of Jesus preached the gospel in the book of Acts. It might not sound very familiar to you. It might sound different to the way that people preach the gospel today. And that is a problem. We should pay attention to how Peter preached the gospel of the kingdom on the day of Pentecost, for example, or how Stephen went about it before he was stoned to death by those who hated him. You see, we should pay attention to the apostolic preaching for it, it agrees, of course, with the preaching of Jesus. He went around preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God in His ministry. He commissioned His disciples, His apostles to do the same, and they did. And we have record of their preaching. And more than this, we have a record of the apostolic preaching and teaching and the many letters that they wrote, uh, the book of Romans through the book of Revelation. So do you wish to know what the good news of the kingdom of God is that Christ preached, that Luke makes mention of here? Then you must read the Holy Scriptures. You must take up the Bible and read it. And you must read it from from Genesis 1 to Revelation chapter 22 through to the end of it. We are to read the Bible and know we are not to begin with Matthew 1 or Luke 1 or Genesis 12 But we are to begin with Genesis 1. And to fully appreciate the good news of the kingdom of God, we must read all the way through to the end of the book of Revelation. For in the closing chapters of that glorious book, we are given a picture of what this kingdom, the kingdom of God of which Christ spoke, will be like when it is brought to its full and final form. So what is the good news of the kingdom of God? If someone were to ask me to sum it up in only a sentence or two, I think I might go to... One of those passages that describe the consummation or completion of the kingdom of God. Revelation 21 is one such passage. There the Apostle John records for us a vision that he saw of the new heavens and earth. In verse 2 he tells us that he saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And he heard a loud voice from the throne saying, listen carefully to these words that came from the throne of God, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. I think this is a wonderful summary of the good news of the kingdom of God. It is the good news that God will be the king of his people, that he will dwell in the midst of them and they with him in his kingdom, and that this kingdom will fill all the earth just as it is described in the final chapters of the book of Revelation. Indeed, this kingdom that has God as king and that fills the earth where the citizens of this kingdom enjoy the presence of God Almighty, it will last forever and ever. This is the good news of the kingdom of God. Hear it again. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be His people, and God Himself will be with them as their God. That is Revelation 21, verses 2 and 3. And I do hope that you agree that this is good news. 
In fact, I hope you will consider it to be the very best of news. Those who love God will surely agree that there is no greater blessing than to be at peace with God, to dwell in His presence, to commune with Him, and to behold His glory. Indeed, we were made for this purpose, to know God, to walk with Him, to worship Him, and to enjoy Him forever and ever. And those who love God will also agree that it is the best of news to hear that God is our King. Think of how good and pleasant it would be to dwell in a kingdom where the King of that kingdom is perfectly holy and just, all-powerful, perfectly wise, lacking in nothing, and full of love for those He rules. Can you imagine living in a kingdom and under the rule of a king like this? You know, one of the benefits of having turmoil within society is that it wakes us up to the fact that this is not heaven. This is not the new heavens and new earth, and we're able to see sin and the effects of sin in a more pronounced way, and we're able to contrast it with what will be at the end of time. Think of how good it would be to live in a kingdom like this, with a king like this, who is perfectly holy and just, all-powerful, perfectly wise, lacking in nothing, and full of love for those he rules. And those who love God will also agree that it is the best of news to hear that God's kingdom fills heaven and earth with no territory at all given to any competing king or kingdom. That is good news, is it not? I hope that you consider it to be. And this, as you likely know, is the picture that is painted at the end of the book of Revelation. There we find a picture of God's kingdom brought to its full and final form. Who is the king of this kingdom? God is. Who are the citizens of this kingdom? They are those whom God has redeemed through King Jesus the Messiah. They are those who have turned from their sins to trust in Him as Lord and Savior and none other. And where are the borders of this kingdom? God's kingdom will on the last day fill all of heaven and earth. Nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life, says Revelation 21 verse 27. This, brothers and sisters, is the good news of the kingdom of God that Jesus proclaimed in its full and final form. It is the good news that those who trust in Christ will be reconciled to God the Father. They will have God as their King. He will dwell in the midst of them and they will behold His glory. They will dwell secure in His kingdom forever and ever and they will lack no good thing. For God their King will keep them and bless them with every blessing. The greatest blessing of all being the gift of uninterrupted communion with God Himself. As we ask the question, what is the good news of the kingdom of God that Jesus preached? I think it is helpful to start at the end and to consider what this kingdom will be when it is here in full. But as I take this approach, I suspect that you are thinking to yourselves, but what about the backstory? Isn't there so much more uh, to this story? And the answer, of course, is yes, there is so much more to this story. Yes, it is wonderful to talk about the good news of the kingdom from the vantage point of the consummation or end, but isn't there so much more to the story? What about the Old Covenant? What about Israel? What about Christ? How did we get here? And how will we get there? And I'm glad you asked. For to understand what the good news of the kingdom of God is, we cannot only consider the end, we must also know the beginning and the middle of this glorious story. Luke tells us that Jesus went on through cities and villages proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. 
He does not explicitly tell us what the content of Jesus' message was because he expects us to know all about the kingdom of God from the storyline of Scripture beginning at Genesis chapter 1. Friends, you've heard this from me before many times, and you will hear it from me much more in the future. Um, This is a hobby horse of mine to talk about the kingdom of God, and this is the only hobby horse that a pastor should be permitted to ride, you see, because this is the gospel. Pastors are called to preach the gospel, and the gospel of Jesus Christ is the gospel of the kingdom of God, you see. And the storyline of Scripture is all about God's kingdom. The Bible is about the establishment of God's kingdom. This is the storyline of Scripture. The storyline of Scripture has as its aim the glory of God Almighty, the Lord Most High. And yes, the Bible does tell us how we can be brought into a right relationship with God through faith in Christ, but the story contained in Scripture is the divinely inspired record of the establishment of God's worldwide and eternal kingdom. The Bible is not just about you and your personal salvation. It is about so much more. It is about the redemption of a people. It is about the establishment of a kingdom. It is about the redemption of heaven and earth even. To miss this overarching narrative or to err in some of the details concerning the unfolding of this story will leave you very confused regarding the message and meaning of the Bible. And I am afraid that many are confused about this message today. So where does the story of God's kingdom begin? It is not in Revelation 21. It is not in Luke 1. It is not in Exodus 1. It is not in Genesis 12. And if you know your Bibles well, you know what I am here alluding to. Uh, The the story of God's kingdom does not begin with Old Covenant Israel, in other words. We must go to Genesis 1 if we wish to properly understand the story of the establishment of the kingdom of God. To understand what Luke means when he says that Jesus went on through the cities and villages proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God to Genesis chapter 1, we must go. It is in Genesis chapter 1 that we learn that God is the king of the universe. God exists in eternity. He had no beginning and will have no end. No one made God. Rather, in the beginning God created out of nothing the heavens and earth. That is to say, all things seen and unseen. So then, there is the eternal and self-existent God and there is His creation. All that exists falls into one of these two categories. There is God and there is God's creation. And God is king of His creation. When God created the heavenly, invisible, and earthly, visible realms, see Colossians 1.16, He spoke them into existence out of nothing by the word of His power. And then He formed and fashioned the earthly, visible realm to make it a place suitable for human habitation. God the King created multiple Realms within the earthly realm, the heavens above, the sky, the oceans, and the dry land. And then He filled those realms with rulers. Rulers who were created by Him to do His bidding and to govern the world that He had made. The sun, moon, and stars were put into place to rule the day and the night, the Scriptures say. The birds of the air and the fish of the sea were to fill the sky and the oceans. Animals were created to fill the land, but man, male and female... Made in the image of God was the pinnacle of God's creation. And we should ask the question, what does it mean for man to be made in the image of God? 
One thing it does not mean is that man was made to look like God physically, for we know that God is invisible, a most pure spirit, without body and without parts. You may see John 4.24 for this. What then does it mean to be made in God's image? Well, some have pointed to the fact that man is a moral creature. Like God, man has the capacity to discern good from evil and to image God's holiness, therefore. Others have noticed that man is a rational creature, capable of thinking God's thoughts after him and imaging his wisdom. Others have noticed that man is a relational being, capable of communing with or corresponding to God. And all of these observations are are very good and true, and more observations like this could be made. But do not miss the fact that God created man with all of these qualities or these capacities so that they might rule and reign on earth as His little kings, vice-regents in the world that God had made. I want you to notice that kingdom language is all over Genesis chapter 1. I've already pointed out that the sun, moon, and stars were put into place to rule the day and the night, Genesis 1.16. But listen again to Genesis 1.26 and following. God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have what? Dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in His own image. In the image of God He created him. Male and female He created them. Notice how strong the emphasis is upon man being made in God's image. But the text goes on to say, So God created man in His own image and He blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. He says, subdue it. This is what kings do. They subdue things. And again, I read, have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Can you hear the kingdom language coming through Genesis 1? The point is this. The man and the woman were created in the image of God. They were created with certain godlike capacities and characteristics so that they might rule on the earth that God had made. And in God's kingdom. They were to rule on earth, not independent of God, but in continual submission to His sovereign rule. They were to exercise dominion over God's creation and subdue the other creatures, not as tyrants and oppressors, but as loving rulers who seek the good and betterment of their subjects And if we were to consider Genesis chapter 2 as well, we would see clearly that the man and the woman were were made to enjoy communion with God in this creation. They were to worship Him, obey Him, and live for His glory. The garden was created by God for this purpose. And the man and the woman were to fill this garden paradise with their offspring. They were to guard it from every impure thing. They were to expand this garden until it filled all the earth. Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 is all about God's kingdom, the keeping of God's kingdom, the expansion of God's kingdom to the ends of the earth. This scene that I am now describing to you should sound to your ears very much like the scene that we encountered at the end of the book of Revelation. In the garden, before sin entered the world, God was king and He was honored as such. Adam was a king too. Adam was a king too living under the authority of God Almighty. 
And as king, he was to rule. He was subdued to subdue. He was to protect this realm that God had entrusted to him. And he was to fill it and expand it until it was brought to its consummation or end. Had he succeeded, had he passed the probationary period symbolized by the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he would have been permitted to eat of the tree of life. And he, along with all that he represented as king, would enter into glory. You know the story though. King Adam did not, did not last long in his state of perfection. When an intruder came, he was not on guard. The serpent was allowed to speak to his wife and he deceived her. And she conveyed the lies to him and he believed them and he rebelled. Adam the king became a traitor when he rebelled against his maker and listened to the voice of another. And so God banished this traitor king from the garden kingdom and sentenced him to death. And another king of another kingdom began to rule on earth. Did you hear those words? Another king of another kingdom began at that moment to rule on earth. Satan, the usurper, the liar and father of all lies, he began to rule and reign on earth. To use the language of Paul, he is the prince of of the power of the air who works in the sons of disobedience, Ephesians 2.2. To quote Jesus, He is the ruler of this world, see John 12.31, 14.30 and 16.11. Satan is the rebel traitor king who bound the nations in sin, idolatry and darkness. In Genesis chapters 1 and 2, we see that God's kingdom was offered to Adam and to his posterity in the covenant of works or life or creation, whichever you prefer to call it, that God made with him. But in Genesis 3, we learn that Adam gave this kingdom away to another by listening to his voice instead of to the word of God. God would not have been wrong to leave the world in this state of sin and misery. He would not have been wrong to abandon this rebel kingdom and to commit it to judgment. But because God is merciful and for the glory of His name, God determined to defeat Satan, this usurper king, to dethrone him from his illegitimate throne, to overthrow his kingdom of darkness, and to rescue many of the fallen and sinful children of Adam, to bring them out of the kingdom of darkness and into his kingdom of light. How would he do it? Well, the first hint of this rescue mission the first hint of this counteroffensive was given even to Adam and Eve. The good news of God's plan of redemption was delivered to them in the form of the curse that was pronounced upon the serpent who had deceived Eve and through her Adam. In Genesis 3.14 we read, The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And then the Lord says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This, this curse that was pronounced upon the serpent has puzzled many Bible interpreters. When it is interpreted in the context of the whole of Scripture, the meaning does become clear. A righteous line would descend from Eve, people who had faith in Yahweh and sought to worship Him. And a wicked line would also be present in the world. These two would descend from Adam and Eve physically, of course. 
But they would be the children of the devil, spiritually speaking. Hostility would exist between these two groups. Those of the serpent would strike continuously at the heels of those of Eve, that is to say, of those who had the faith of Eve. But one day a child would be born to Eve, and this child would deliver a fatal blow to the head of the serpent. You see, in this mysterious way, God promised to overthrow the works of the devil and his kingdom. Salvation would be accomplished through the seed of the woman. He would be a great warrior king. He would win the victory. He would do so through suffering. His heel would be struck, but he would deliver a decisive blow to the head of his adversary, that is, to the head of Satan himself. You see, Jesus Christ was not the first one to preach the good news of the kingdom of God. God Himself proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God, even in the presence of Adam and Eve. The words, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel, were the very first articulation of the gospel of the kingdom of God. And of course, we know that the skull-crushing seed of the woman was Christ. He was Jesus Christ. So how then did we get from Adam to Christ? How then did we get from Adam to Christ? The answer is through Israel. There in Old Covenant Israel, the kingdom of God that was offered to Adam but forfeited by his fall into sin, and graciously promised even to Adam and Eve after their fall into sin, was pictured or prefigured through many types and shadows. I want you to read the book of Hebrews and see that the land, the temple, the priesthood, and the people were all types or pictures of heavenly and eternal realities, of greater realities yet to come. And it would be through Israel that the promises of God concerning the coming Messiah were preserved. See Romans 9, 4-5. And finally, it would be through Israel, through ethnic Israel, through Old Covenant Israel, that Jesus Christ the Messiah would be born into the world. He is the Son of God, the Son of the Virgin Mary, who was the daughter of Eve. How then did we get from Adam to Christ? As I have said, it was through Old Covenant Israel. But please allow me to very rapidly remind you of this history. It will have to be very rapid. I am here giving you an overview of the entire Old Testament from Genesis 3 onward. The righteous line of Eve is traced for us in Genesis chapters 4-10. through 10. You should see especially the genealogy of Genesis 5. That genealogy takes us up to Noah and to Noah's three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. After this we find the story of the flood, and after the story of the flood we find a very interesting story about Noah and his three sons. The end result of this story is that a distinction is made between the sons of Noah. Noah curses Canaan, the son of his son Ham. He blesses Shem supremely, and he pronounces a blessing upon his son Japheth too. I want you to listen very carefully to the blessing that Noah, who was a kind of second Adam by the way, pronounced upon Shem and then Japheth. This is so crucial to understanding the storyline of Scripture, brothers and sisters. It's why I'm taking the time to bring this to your attention yet again. In Genesis 9.10 we read the words of Noah, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. So we see that Shem had Yahweh as God. He was of the righteous line of Eve. 
I continue to quote now, and let Canaan be his servant. Uh, the Canaanites would de- descend from Canaan. Uh, they were of the wicked seed of the serpent and were especially cursed. And then I continue to quote, May God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. So the blessings that Noah pronounced on his sons, Shem and Japheth, they are very important. If you trace the line of Shem in Genesis 10 and 11, you will see that it goes through Eber. The Hebrews came from Eber. And it terminates on a very famous figure, Abram, whom we know as Abraham. So Shem becomes the Hebrews. Shem becomes Abraham and the children of Abraham. And they are particularly blessed. They are set apart and blessed of the Lord in a very special way from the days of Noah onward. Before we go further with Abraham, I want to draw your attention to the blessing that Noah pronounced on Japheth. Hear it again. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. The genealogy of Japheth is found in Genesis 10 and 10 verse 2. Like Ham, Japheth would become Gentile nations. But Japheth, notice, was not cursed, but was blessed. Noah prayed that Japheth would be enlarged, that he would come to dwell in the tents of Shem, and that Canaan would be his servant. And a careful study of the rest of Scripture reveals quite clearly the meaning of this. After the flood, which was both an act of judgment and a new creation, humanity was then divided into three groups. Two we call Gentile and one Hebrew. The Hebrews who descended from Shem were uniquely set apart and blessed. But notice that from the beginning, their purpose was to be a blessing to the sons of Japheth. Do you see it? The sons of Japheth were also blessed, and they were to dwell in the tents of Shem. They were to be blessed within the descendants of Shem and through them. This becomes even more clear when we come to Abram, the descendant of Shem and the father of ethnic Israel. In Genesis 12, verse 1, we read, The Lord saying to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And now listen to this. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is in fulfillment of the blessings pronounced pronounced by Noah upon his sons. Abraham, the Shemite, would become a great nation on earth. Land would be given to his descendants. Later the Lord tells us that kings would come from his loins. Do you hear kingdom language here? So the Lord would establish a kingdom on earth. It would be the kingdom of Israel. But do not miss what God said to Abram from the beginning. It is an amplification of what Noah said to Japheth, In you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So whatever God would do with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the kingdom that would come from them, it is to be understood that from the beginning the purpose was to bless all the nations of the earth through them. Japheth would be enlarged. Japheth would be blessed in the tents of Shem, This was the stated purpose of Israel from the very beginning, going even back to Noah and his sons. As you know, Abraham would have a son named Isaac, and Isaac would have a son named Jacob or Israel. 
And Israel would have 12 sons. And of particular interest to us today is Israel's son, Judah. When Israel was about to die, he called his sons to himself to tell them what would happen to them in the days to come. I don't know if we should call these blessings or prophecies. They're more like prophecies. Not everything that is said here is a blessing. Some curses were pronounced too. His words to Judah were particularly impressive. Listen to them. Judah, says Jacob or Israel. Judah, your your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness who dares rouse him. Listen carefully to these words. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. That is to say, to him shall be the obedience of the nations, you see. So from Judah, the kings of Israel would come. It would be Judah who would rule. And it is suggested here that Judah would rule forever and ever. And he would rule over all peoples. Hear it again, the scepter that is to say, the, the staff that kings would hold as they rule, shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. So I hope that you are seeing the theme of the kingdom of God, brothers and sisters, in the Old Testament. I hope that you are thinking of the earth as it was in the beginning, of the earth as it was after man's fall into sin, and of the earth as it was in the day of Noah, and then in the days of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I want you to think of all the kingdoms of the earth that then existed. Think of how they were bound in darkness, the darkness of sin and idolatry, and under the power of the evil one. And then ask, where is the kingdom of God? Where is the kingdom of God? Where was it in those days, in the days of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and of Jacob's twelve sons? Where was this kingdom of God that was promised even to Adam? I hope you can see that it was present in the world in those days, but it was still in the form of promise. The kingdom of God was present in the world in those days, in the midst of all of the nations bound in darkness. It was there But it was still in the form of promise. Shem would be blessed and Japheth would be blessed in the tents of Shem. Abraham would be blessed. Kings would come from his loins and in him all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And then we are told that the kings of Israel would descend from Judah, the son of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The kingdom of God was present in the world in those days. In the midst of all of the nations, bound in darkness, who were living in idolatry, giving worship not to God Almighty, but to demons. The kingdom of God was still present, but only in the form of promise. When did the kingdom of God first become visible? When did it first become visible? Answer, it was in the days of Moses, after the Exodus. For the very first time, The children of Eve, Seth, Noah, Shem, Eber, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were gathered together as something more than a family or a clan. They were rescued from Pharaoh and Egypt, who, by the way, were a type of Satan and his dark kingdom. 
They were led out into the wilderness and towards the land that God promised them. And please do not miss this. God dwelt in the midst of them as their God. And they were set apart from all the peoples of this earth as His people. He led them day and night in the wilderness. He manifested His glory in the tabernacle. The tribes of Israel camped around this tabernacle, even in the wilderness, signifying that the Lord was their God and they were His people. It's a little picture of what Revelation 21 and 22 describes. The glory of God dwelling in the midst of His people whom He has redeemed, you see. The kingdom of God that was first offered to Adam in the garden, then promised to Adam and and to, um, from, from Adam to Moses, was for the first time made visible on earth at the Exodus. But when would this earthly kingdom come in full? Answer, it was in the days of King David. Saul, as you know, was the first king of Israel. But he was not the king that God desired. He was a king like the kings of the other nations. He did not rule as if under the authority of God Almighty. He ruled instead according to his own human strength and wisdom. He did not have regard for the word of God. He did not rule as if under God's authority. In this respect, he was like the rebel king Adam, wasn't he? Compare Saul to Adam. He ruled according to his own initiative, according to his own wisdom, neglecting or rebelling against the word of God. But God, by His grace, selected David to be king of Israel. And David was not like the kings of the other nations. But he had regard for God and for God's word. This is why David is called a man after God's own heart. Though he was a sinful man, he did rule in Israel, knowing that God was king over him and over them. He ruled in Israel knowing that he was but a vassal king. One who ruled under God's authority. David was king after God's own heart in the sense that he understood God's plan of redemption. He understood that God was king over him and that God had as his purpose to bless the nations of the earth through Israel and to restore and bring to completion that which Adam lost. David was a man after God's own heart in that he did not think of himself as Lord and King but looked to God as King and look forward to the coming Messiah who would descend from his loins. 2 Samuel 7 is very important. There we find a record of the covenant that God made with King David. The whole passage is important. For the sake of time, I want you to listen to what God says to David in verse 12. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, in other words, when you die, David, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body. And I will establish his, what? Kingdom. I will establish his kingdom. And he shall build a house for my name, a temple. And I will establish his throne and his kingdom for how long? Forever. Forever. This, this, covenant that was made with David is so immensely important. And listen to verse 16. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So there is great emphasis placed upon this. This son of David 
would rule and reign forever and ever in his kingdom. We know that Solomon's son David would rule after him. But it should be clear to all that these promises were not fulfilled in Solomon. And neither were they fulfilled by the many kings who would descend from Solomon within Israel. None of them ruled forever. They all perished. And another king would take their place. This promise would find its fulfillment in the Messiah, Christ the Lord. King David knew this. Do you want proof that he knew this? Then you could read Psalm 110, which is quoted so often in the New Testament, and for good reason, because it is central. If you wish to understand the story of the Bible and and all of this about the kingdom of God, you must consider Psalm 110. The New Testament cites this very often to demonstrate that the promise concerning a king who would rule forever and ever was by no means fulfilled by King David. David was not the Messiah. Solomon was not the Messiah. None of the kings who ruled in Old Covenant Israel were the Messiah. Jesus was the Messiah. And He is the Son of God, the Son of Adam, the Son of David, the Son of Abraham and the Son of David. If you wish to see these citations of Psalm 110 in the New Testament, you may go to Matthew 22, 44, Mark 12, 36, Luke 20, verses 42 and 43, Acts 2, 34 and 35. The kingdom, this kingdom that God promised to David, this eternal kingdom, would belong not to David or to Solomon, but to Christ Jesus the Messiah. A psalm of David, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. That is verse 1 of Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David knew that the king that would descend from him, that was promised to him, the son that would that would be born into this world who would rule, was in fact his Lord. The Lord said to my Lord, the New Testament makes so much of this citation here. You see the kingdom of old covenant Israel, the land, the temple, the priests, the people, and the kings. These were but an earthly picture, a type or shadow of better things to come. Abraham knew this, see Hebrews 11.1. Moses knew this, see Exodus 25.9 and 40. David knew this, see Psalm, 2 Samuel 7 and Psalm 110. And the prophets of old knew this too. They, they all looked forward to a new covenant and to a, a greater kingdom that would last forever and ever. All who had true faith under old covenant Israel knew that they were worshiping at a temple and living in a kingdom that was typological. For these were pictures of heavenly and eternal realities. The eternal temple and the eternal kingdom would be built and established not by David or Solomon or any of those old covenant kings, but by the Messiah. The Messiah, who was David's Lord, would be king of this eternal kingdom. So when did this kingdom of God that was offered and rejected, promised and prefigured, as I have just said, when did it arrive with power? When did it come into the world with power? We must say, it was at Christ's first coming. This is why John the Baptist and Christ came preaching, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And this is why Christ went about preaching the good news of the kingdom of God. He had good news to proclaim because this kingdom that had been expected for so long was finally here. The good news of the kingdom of God is the news that the king of this kingdom has come. He is Jesus Christ the Lord, the son of Adam, the son of Abraham, the son of David, the son of God.
The good news of the kingdom of God is the news that the king has stomped the head of the serpent to defeat him and to overthrow his kingdom. Christ has defeated the evil one. He has bound him so that he can no longer hold the nations in darkness. The king, the king of kings and the lord of lords, is now plundering this usurper king's house. By the way, Christ stomped on the head of the serpent at the cross. That is when the victory was won. He died, he was buried, he rose again, and he defeated sin, Satan, and this kingdom of darkness. But Luke also shows us that Christ began to bind Satan even at the very beginning of his public ministry. Remember what happened in the wilderness? When Christ was baptized, he went out into the wilderness and he was tempted there, kind of like Adam was tempted. And three times he resisted the temptation. He defeated the evil one there. He began to bind the strong man, this usurper king, from the beginning of his public ministry. And there is a reason why we are told about Jesus casting out demons. Why? What is this except a demonstration? A demonstration that the power of the kingdom of God has come upon the people. Christ possessed this power. And he began to demonstrate that he had authority over the evil one himself. And of course all of this would culminate at the cross where Christ would stomp the head of the serpent dealing the decisive and victorious blow. The good news of the kingdom is the news that the way into the everlasting kingdom has been opened up for the citizens of the kingdom through faith in Christ the King and by His finished work. The good news of the kingdom of God is the news that the kingdom that was offered to Adam but forfeited has been earned Where King Adam failed, King Jesus has succeeded. The new heavens and earth have been earned by Jesus, and He will fill the earth with the people that He has redeemed. Finally, the good news of the kingdom of God is the news that the new heavens and earth will be brought in at the end of time, and God will dwell in the midst of His people. Behold, I say to you again, the dwelling place of God will be with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be His people, and God Himself will be with them as their God. Revelation 21, verses 2-3. through how can, these, how can these things be, given our sin and rebellion? This reconciliation with God is made possible only by the person and work of King Jesus, and through faith in Him. You see, Christ the King has won the victory. He lived for sinners, died for sinners, defeated sin, Satan, and death for sinners by rising again from the dead on the third day. As Paul says, But in fact Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at His coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, Paul says, when He delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For He, Christ, must reign until He has put all His enemies under His feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under His feet, But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that He is accepted who put all things in in subjection under Him. When all things are subjected to Him, then the Son Himself will also be subjected to Him who put all things in subjection under Him, that God may be all in all. 
I wonder if you were able to follow along with those last verses there that speak of things being put underneath the feet of Christ. The picture should be clear to you. Think of Adam in the beginning, created in the image of God, to rule and reign on earth as a vice regent under God's supreme authority. He was to rule and reign living in obedience to God. He was to do God's will and he was to give glory to God Almighty. Adam was to build God's kingdom on earth. But it was not a kingdom for himself. It was a kingdom to the glory of God. Adam was to deliver this kingdom to God Almighty as worship was offered up to God in this garden that had been expanded to the ends of the earth. Can you see that Christ has come to do the same thing? Christ is king of God's kingdom now. But his purpose is not to bring glory unto himself. All things will, put un, will be put under his feet and he will bring all things to a consummation. Then he will hand this kingdom over to who? God Almighty. So that God might be all in all. So that God might be glorified. Brothers and sisters, this is the good news of the kingdom of God. The good news is not about your personal salvation only. Nor is it about the establishment or re-establishment of some earthly, temporary, typological kingdom. No, the good news of the kingdom is that the dwelling place of God will be with man. He will dwell with them. And they will be His people. And God Himself will be with them as their God. This will be our blessed and eternal experience in the new heavens and earth, given the victory that Christ has won. His kingdom is here now. It is manifest in His church where Christ is honored as Lord. It will be here in full at the end of time when Christ returns to make all things new. Lord Jesus, come quickly. Amen? Amen. Let's bow together for prayer. Our Father in heaven, I pray that you would help us to know what the good news of the kingdom of God is. And help us to live according to this truth. We know that your kingdom is not of this world. We know that we are sojourners in this world. We know that your kingdom will suffer violence in this world. So help us, O Lord, to be faithful and true, trusting always in you. We long for the return of Christ, new heavens and new earth. We long to live in this consummated kingdom where God is king, where his kingdom has filled the earth, and where we enjoy every good thing, the greatest blessing of all being communion with you, O God, our Maker and our Redeemer. Lord Jesus, come quickly. Amen.